2: Figuring out how to deal with someone who's struggling with drugs and alcohol is a topic really for any time of year. But if someone you know seems to have a problem, the these upcoming holidays are often a time when it's going to really be highlighted. As a recovering drug addict myself, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. So today I'm giving you everything you need to know to approach any person who's struggling and to do it from a place of confidence and love. And I've got an amazing free, quick and easy handout for how to speak to someone struggling with drug or alcohol use. So you don't have to take notes, you can download it at the end and you will be really ready and prepared for that next conversation. I'm Dr. Abby Metcalf and I'm a number one Amazon bestselling author, TEDx speaker and all around relationship maven with over 30 years of experience helping people create connected and happy relationships. Combining my hands-on experience and all the latest research, I've created actionable tips and tools you can apply quickly and easily to create lasting change in your relationship today. So let's get to it. Well, hi there. Welcome back. Good to see you or hear you. Or be in contact with you. I just want to say that it has been quite a time here in the United States. I know I have a lot of listeners from all over the world. So hello, hello. And I'm sure you're all also breathing a sigh of relief that our um, current administration has changed. Uh, And just, I feel this collective sigh all across the United States right now. Um, And so, it's been quite a week. Uh, I'm also going to share that, you know, my my mom passed uh, this last week and I was just in Florida uh, wrapping up all that. So it's just been, it's been a crazy time. And I'm really happy right this minute to have this time with you and to be coming at you today with a topic that is, as I mentioned, really near and dear to my heart. I have been in long-term recovery I have uh, come from a family where there's a ton of addiction, lots of struggles. And so this is an area that I know a lot about. I also, I have been doing, gosh, a group in a drug and alcohol rehab for about 30 years. How do you like that? (laughs) So, uh, and I still go to 12 step meetings and all that, you know, it's, uh, it's not something I talk about a lot on the broadcast, but it is, uh, or in detail, I should say, but it is something I know a lot about. So not just on the end of, yes, I, you know, am in recovery and I have to deal with that, but also on the end that I've been a professional in the field. I've been on the news. I've been, you know, as a, cited as an expert, I, I've been, this is something I really know a lot about. So I'm really happy to come to you today. My big problem, of course, was how to make it not a five hour broadcast <laughs> it's because there's really a lot I need, you need to understand. Before we get into like what to do. And, but I'm going to cover it all today. And again, my goal is that you at the end, you feel confident and coming from a place of love. That's really what it's all about, right? That you're not questioning yourself and so worried about, am I doing the right thing? Am I not? Oh, should I do this? Should I do that? I want you at the end to really be clear. So that's my goal today. And before we jump in, I just want to say that if you haven't yet, I would love for you to check out my book, How to Be Happily Married, Even if Your Partner Won't Do a Thing, which is on Audible. And of course, if you don't have Audible yet, you can get it for free. Get my book for free. Uh, by, you know, getting on there, you get a free three month trial on Amazon and then, you know, you can always cancel, uh, if you don't want to stick with it, but I'd really love, and there's still a, there's a hardcover of my book. There's, uh, a, you know, you can get it for a digital download, but I will link to that in the show notes. I'd love for you to check out my book. And even if you have a partner who is doing something, if you read the reviews, you'll see this is a book that will help you either way. Uh, and I'm really proud of it. And, uh, I'd love for you to get that help and have it all kind of in one little, one person called it a Bible, like they're a little couple's Bible. So, you know, maybe just having it all in one place. All right. So let's jump in. We got a lot to cover and I want to make sure we get there. So first we have to get clear on what we're talking about. And there are a few things I want to square away, um, first. So first things first, everything from alcohol to pot to nicotine to heroin, all drugs, we consider alcohol a drug. So I won't be separating out alcohol today necessarily. I'll be saying drugs a lot, but no, if the person you're talking about only drinks or something, it all applies. I'm just, you know, it just becomes very uh, wordy to keep saying that. Uh, Second, in the last iteration of what we call the the DSM, the Diagnostical and Statistical the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the big book we psychologists and healthcare professionals use to diagnose people, uh, in that book they it was the first time that they changed. Uh, we used to say drug, uh, we used to say alcohol addiction or you know drug addiction and abuse. We used to use those two terms, and now we say. Uh, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. So we've changed the language and it's more of a continuum. It's really interesting how it's changed, but it has an impact in how I'm going to talk today. So I will be using the terms, you know, addiction and addict, but for, you know, just the ease of chatting, but I really want you to know that we're really um, shifting the language away from that. Uh, third, got to understand that substance use disorder, this is a disease. It's a real disease, people. It's not made up. It's not an excuse. It is a disease. And what's different than most diseases is that it affects the brain. It's a brain disease. It's not a body disease. So because it affects the brain, it means the symptoms are mostly... Behavioral and emotional; those are the symptoms that you'll see. It's not what you can see physically. Usually, obviously, withdrawal is and things like that, or someone just looking like hell if they're high or crashing or coming down. But it's you know you you don't necessarily point to it on a test result. You don't go to the lab and you know come back with a with a positive. You know, other than if they're actually in your system. But you know what I mean? Uh, that this person is an addict. You know, it doesn't work that way. So, and sadly, this leads to a lot of people thinking that it's not real. It, it it most certainly is and it is really about understanding that it's, we can't blame people for having an addiction. They certainly have responsibility. Do not get me wrong, I am responsible. And I want you to think about it a lot like diabetes, that someone's not to blame for having diabetes, but once they know they have it, it is, they are responsible, right? To eat well, to uh, exercise, to take any medication, to try to be more stress-free. You know, they're, they're responsible for educating themselves and really understanding but they are not to blame if uh, they're doing all the right things. I've known diabetics who've done all the right things and still had a, a, some sort of, you know, quote unquote relapse or some sort of issue around their diabetes, because that's always changing and growing as we change and grow. So I want you to understand that. And it's, uh, you know, this repeated use of a drug Literally changes the way our brains feel pleasure, which causes physical changes to some neurons and neurotransmitters in the brain, and that's one of the reasons we can call it a disease because it fits the criteria for a disease. And I'm not going to get into all that today because I, I I'm just trying to keep this as, sh- as short and succinct as possible. But it's absolutely one and. This again is a brain disease that progresses to the point that there's literally an inability to control the use of uh, of any substance. You know, the substance of choice. So when people become addicted, they'll continue to use despite negative consequences. These and these changes to the brain remain after the use stops. So uh, this is a really important thing to understand that you don't get cured necessarily. That this is something that's ongoing in the brain. That people can have cross addictions, you know, stop using one thing and start using another. There's all kinds of things involved. Uh, And the next thing is that you need to understand that there are specific criteria that have to be met to say that someone has a substance use disorder, okay, some sort of addiction. there's criteria. And interestingly, I really want to point this out. None of the criteria, I'm going to go over them today with you so you understand, none of them relate to how much a person actually uses. So you can be someone who comes home every night and has a martini after work and not be an alcoholic. And you can be someone who comes home every night and has a martini after work and be an alcoholic and, and have a substance use disorder, an alcohol use disorder. It really depends on your behavior around, whatever the choice is, whatever the substance of choice is. That's the biggie. So I'm going to go over the criteria. And there, this is, again, from the DSM, from this big book we use to diagnose. Uh, and there are 11 criteria. And what's required is that you need to have the person... I'm saying you a lot, and I understand that a lot of you are listening for someone else because, you know, you know someone who's struggling. So just, you know, let that go. But you might also be wondering if you have a little problem. Who knows? And you need so you need to have at least two of these criteria, these 11 criteria, within a 12-month period okay, at least two. And again, now that it's substance use disorder, like if you if you had two, you would probably be on one end of the scale. If you had 11, right, you'd be way at the other end of the scale. It's seen more of as a continuum now. Um, so I do want to say that. So the first one is that the substances often taken in larger amounts or over a long longer period of time than intended. So this is the you know you, someone goes to the bar and says oh I'm just gonna have one drink and they end up having more or uh you know or they they stayed I'm just gonna stay for an hour at the party and they were and they ended up you know staying there all night. It's, that's what that means. Uh, The second criteria is there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control the use. Now, uh, you know, I, I really like broccoli, but I don't ever have to try to control my broccoli use. Okay. The more things get addictive, the more things like, like if someone said the same thing about chocolate, I've tried to control my chocolate use. I've tried to cut down. I've tried to control when. So anyone, just the, the desire to cut down or control it in some way i'm only gonna drink on the weekends i'm only gonna smoke pot at night i'm only gonna uh go you know do that when i go out i'm you know i'm never i'm not gonna have it in the house i'm only gonna party outside i'm uh you know oh i'm gonna stop now i'm gonna stop and i hear people say that a lot to me they'll say i've stopped for months at a time I've I've done it before I can stop and just the fact that you that you keep stopping like that that you keep doing that that's actually a sign of the addiction they, they think they're proving to me that they're not and I'm actually getting proof that they are because uh, and in the drug and alcohol world those of us who are uh, addicts we call people who can use in a normal way we call them normies because <laughs> they're kind of normal use and so uh, uh, my partner is a my man Gary is a good example of that. He he's just a normal drinker. He he can drink occasionally. Um, it and he likes to go out like on Friday nights with his softball buddies and drink. Uh, they have a few beers. But he like when we were in lockdown, and he didn't have softball. He didn't drink at all. <laughs> because he drinks in this social way. He drinks, you know, very occasionally. He, uh, is someone who doesn't want to get drunk. He never wants to drink if he's in a bad mood. He sees it as a kind of a social fun thing. Uh, you know, there, it's, it's, he's a total normie when it comes to drinking. Um, and so it's a, <laughs> it's, he's never thought, oh, I need to cut down or stop. He, he doesn't do that. He just it just doesn't occur to him Matter of fact, when we were in, you know, kind of the lockdown You know, that uh, he hadn't drank All of a sudden he said to me one day, he goes Oh yeah, I, I haven't drank in months You know, he, he just noticed it Because it's not important, he doesn't think about it It doesn't come up like that so number three criteria, a lot of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain it, to use to use it itself, or recover from the effects of whatever your substance is. So when you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to drink when I go here, I'm going to, oh, I got to do all this stuff to get my stash. I have to, uh, you know, I'm going to take money from this account and put in this account so I can do it here. And, uh, you know, when all that stuff is going on or, you, you know, you are spending just a lot of time. You can't think of going out to a game or something without drinking. Why would I go out if I can't have a drink or if I can't, uh, use the drug or I can't do the thing. If you're again, recovering from the effects of it, a lot of time is spent doing that. All these things are one of the criteria. The fourth criteria is a craving or a strong desire to use. If you have cravings or just the strong desire, Uh, not everybody has cravings, believe it or not. I have clients who don't even think about using it. And then all of a sudden they're sort of somewhere and, and, you know, maybe they're just out to dinner or something and weren't planning to use. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, they just, they just have this strong, strong desire to use. So it's not like a craving where they were just, oh, I can't stop thinking about it. They just are in that moment and they feel like there's no other choice, uh, Number five is recurrent use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. So in other words, that you're using and it's causing you not to, uh, do what you should be doing at home, work, or school. Number six, continued use despite social or interpersonal problems, uh, caused or exacerbated, you know, made worse by the effects of using. So in other words, uh, you're getting in fights with your partner, you're getting in fights at work, you're having arguments here or there, your mother, whoever, and you're having these sort of interpersonal or social problems that, uh, because of your use, you know, and, and it's, it's connected and people are saying to you, like, I didn't like how you were talking last night or noticing the biggie I notice with people who have a problem is that they have a major personality change when they use um, and I don't mean people getting, you know, a little snuggly sometimes or, <laughs> or a little whatever, but when you see sort of a major and they start talking really different and just being different, it's like a different personality coming at you. That is generally uh, a, a, a signal of a big problem. Uh, the next one is, uh, number seven is you are you important social? Work or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of use. So people who, you know, used to like and go play on the softball team and don't do that anymore, used to like to play piano and stopped, uh, used to like to, you know, or used to, uh, were working full time and now they're not working as much, or they're taking a job. I see this one a lot. People who are taking jobs that are well underneath their abilities, um, and they're telling themselves and those around them, oh, this is enough. I'm fine. I I don't, I'm not ambitious like you. You know, when you're really underperforming, that's a big signal or I, oh, I just want this other life where I don't have to work so much. That's true for some people, certainly. But if there's someone who, who are using drugs or alcohol a lot, then I usually am questioning like, really? Is that, is that what you wanted to do when you were 10? Really? Is this, is this what you said you wanted to be when you grew up? I, I don't, I don't always buy it. Uh, Next is number eight, using even when it's physically hazardous. That means that obviously drinking and driving or or smoking pot and driving. Yeah, you can't smoke pot and drive or being under the influence of anything and driving or um, someone who, you know, uh, a young woman going to a frat party and getting so drunk that she doesn't remember uh, where she is or can't, control herself, you know, or or control what's happening around her. People obviously, you know, being in a position where she could be raped or molested or something bad um, or lost, these are, you know, that's a problem. And doing that uh, consistently. If someone, you know, Obviously, it's happened pe- if the first time people drink. Sometimes they don't know what how it's going to affect them. So they don't realize that they've gone too far before it's too far. And so doing that once, you know, it, it happens. But if that was to continue to happen, then that's that's a real problem. Uh, and again, yeah, some not everybody who's ever had, uh, you know, gotten pulled over by the police for being you know drinking too much is an al- is an addict or an alcoholic or whatever but if it happens certainly more than once that's a problem and if you continue to drink and drive and try to control it you know the things the the criteria I've already mentioned it's a problem uh Number nine is using despite a physical or psychological problem that's likely been caused or made worse by using, exacerbated by using. So if you already have a physical problem, you know, a bad back or something, or you already have depression or anxiety and you're continuing to use it's, and it's making it worse, um, or it's causing those problems, then that's a big problem, Okay. All right. Number 10 is tolerance. And this is the first time these last two are the only two that relate at all. Notice none of these relate to how much you use. Uh, and these really relate to it, but in a different way. It's not how much exactly, but tolerance is, you know, maybe it takes you more to more of the use of the drug or the substance to get high or drunk or, or get the desired effect, or they get just have a diminished effect when they do use the same amount. You know, if you drink two beers and it used to get you kind of buzzed and now it no longer does. Um, and then the last one, so that's some sort of tolerance, showing some sort of tolerance. And the last one is any kind of withdrawal. So, uh, so if you actually have some physical withdrawal, um, and by the way, a lot of times withdrawal doesn't, people, I think, always think of like someone with the D, you know, the DTs shaking and, uh, you know, in bed and they can't move. But, I've known, for example, a lot of people addicted to pot afterwards have uh, realized that they, you know, go through this period of just these horrible quote unquote allergies and it's because of the way um, marijuana works on certain neurotransmitters. And so one of them being histamine. And so uh, that one can get, you can look like you have allergies and you don't. And it's really the detox happening. So, and again, sometimes headaches, runny nose, things like that. Um, all these things, uh, trouble sleeping, uh, dif- uh, changes in appetite, all of those are withdrawal symptoms. And so having an actual withdrawal sy- symptom or using so that you don't go into withdrawal. And by the way, I know a lot of you coffee drinkers who do this. So just to be clear, caffeine is a drug. And <laughs> if you have to have, you know, caffeine, if you have to have coffee or a Red Bull or, or a or a Pepsi or something, or you'll get a headache, guess what? That's withdrawal. That's something that you're physically addicted to. And you should, or you're going to crash if you don't have it. You, you know, I'm not saying you need to change that. If it's coffee, I guess it's okay. But really, it really might not be okay. Really think about that, and it's it's something you are physically addicted to. You, I don't know, I don't physically want to be addicted to anything personally. So uh, it's just a thing to keep in mind. And you know, the risk of addiction and how fast you become addicted, it really varies drug to drug. So some drugs, like uh, you know, painkillers or opiates, they have a a higher risk for addiction overall and it might uh, be a quicker addiction than other drugs. Um marijuana is a little less uh than others. I think it's 1 in 10 now is the um stat. Um, uh it's it's actually the stat for marijuana is 1 in 6 for younger people because of the way that uh drugs and alcohol affect teenage brains or developing brains. Um, But it's, I think, one in 10 in the general population still. And I do want to say that everything I'm talking about today, it's really, I'm really talking to adults. Um, However, if you feel like you have a teenager or someone who's struggling, this will apply. You, You will be able to absolutely resonate with what i'm saying and, and you'll see it's harder when someone's a teenager because there's so much of teenage behavior that looks like drug addiction i mean oh my gosh it's it, and it looks like other mental health issues so it's really hard to feather out um when uh when you have a teenager it it and so some or sometimes it is not it's not always sometimes it's very obvious but um i will say that drugs and alcohol on a teenage brain, on a developing brain are much, much different. So for, let me just, I'll give a quick example before I move on. So something like pot, when an adult smoke, smokes pot, uh, this means someone whose brain is fully developed really over age. I'm going to say even over age 27, 28, but, um, when let's say a 40 year old man, man smokes a little pot or something, God bless you. Uh, it, you're you're going to have cognitive deficits, meaning you know your um uh, your uh, response times, your cognition, your ability to think, all that good stuff. You'll have deficits, meaning you know not doing that as well, up to six to eight hours after smoking pot. A teenager smoking that same amount will have cognitive deficits three to four days afterwards. Yeah, three to four days afterwards. It um it hits teenage brains like a sledgehammer because of the way brains are, you know, teenage brains are meant to absorb. They're, they're just, they're shaped differently. The the brain is different than an adult brain, a fully developed brain. Uh, and so it's a whole different thing with teenagers, but I'm not again, going to go all down that road right now. I just want to, I'm pointing that out. All right. So Is it addiction or something else? And sometimes it's hard to know, like I'm just saying, what you're looking at. And in general, I say to watch for these things. You know, if you're thinking, is my partner struggling? Are they not? Or is my kid or whoever? So it's usually really this kind of combination. There's problems at school or work, you know, missing school or work, losing interest in it, could be a drop in grades or performance. Physical health issues, so it might be changes in appetite or sleep, a general lack of motivation or energy, um, a significant weight gain or loss, you know, changed appearance. Um, a lot of times there's these chronic unexplained health issues, you know, it's just this thing and that thing and that thing and that thing just because the body's a little worn down. Might be changes in appearance. So Could be, uh, you know, general hygiene and grooming have changed. Maybe they don't care as much about how they look or showing no interest in their clothing and stuff like that. Uh, Changes in behavior, that's usually the biggest thing we see. So lying, sneakiness, secret keeping, stealing, isolating, changing a friend group or major changes in relationships, all of those things. Um, I will tell you a couple gosh, it was a year ago now, but my, um, teenage son was smoking pot, ha ha ha. And, uh, I knew because of the way he was acting, he was acting different. I could tell there was something off. And of course I did my super sleuthing and found out and put a stop to it, but, uh, I'm not going to talk about that right here, but. You know, I, that's what I was picking up on. And and one of his best friends, the kid who was his best friend, he was no longer hanging out with. And I, and he was hanging with this new group of boys, a couple of boys. And I was like, those two together for me was obvious. He's always been kind of bad at school. <laughs> so there wasn't really a big change there. But those two things had really changed. He just wasn't my kid anymore, even though it wasn't anything really horrible and, you know, it didn't go on that long. I could just tell. And so there, you know, Trust your instincts on this stuff. And then the last one is kind of related to these changes in behavior, the lying and the sneakiness and everything, but really a change in mood, you know, more irritability, impatience, uh, angry outbursts where they weren't there before, emotional flooding, you know, where someone is just like, again, getting overwhelmed with anger or sadness or something and just seems to really be reacting at a much uh, bigger level than what is happening. And you're like, what is going on? Uh, or maybe just total numbness. They're just withdrawn, numb, not reacting to anything. Obviously, mood swings, uh, a hyper or super elevated mood, you know, just out of nowhere. Again, and it's changes in mood. If, if it's someone who's normally, um, you know, like, again, my, my Gary, my man, he's pretty, he's just a happy guy. He's pretty happy-go-lucky in, in a lot of ways. He just approaches the world with a pretty positive attitude. So when he drinks, he gets a little happier you know but it's nothing major and it's nothing uh, and and when he's not drinking his mood just as normal you know it just goes back to kind of normal so he just elevates a little and goes down you know it's nothing uh you're really looking for that big change for that something where you're like this is not what i am used to and so I, and then i quickly want to say so why do some people get addicted i get asked this a lot like how come what is it and Just like any other mental health disorder, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever, substance use disorder is the same thing. There's really often multiple contributing factors, but there's really two that it all comes down to. And that's, you know, nature, nurture, right? So genetics is the first, you know, it's definitely a disease that runs in families. Your chances of becoming addicted are higher if it runs in your family. It's still about a one in four, um, And then environment, you're the nurture part. So there's a lot of environmental factors that contribute to addiction. So, you know, how often and early someone is exposed to it. We know that you're, uh, the later, and I'll say this to parents, the later someone Tries drugs and alcohol, the less chance of becoming addicted, and this has been shown over and over in studies. It's really interesting. So even the sip of alcohol, even the the just smoking pot once or whatever. So I just see it as my job to keep my kids away from it as long as possible. That's my job, not forever, not whatever, but as long as I possibly can. And I'm kind of a tiger about it because of these genetics we have and we're predisposed. So, uh, you know, I it. Well, I'll talk about the whole choice thing in a little bit, but we're predisposed. So it also, uh, the nurture part is also, you know, the family culture. How normal is it to use? How much, how accessible is it? Um, we also know that trauma and other disorders like anxiety and depression play a part. So, and really the anxiety and depression might be more part of the genetics or the nature part, but definitely traumas uh, that have happened to people. Um, and everybody's a little different in how trauma, how something affects them. So you might have uh, divorced parents and two kids, there's three kids in the family and two of them have no issue with it. And the other one, um, it really affects them differently. It's traumatic as sometimes it's birth order. You know, there's so many pieces that play a part. So it's never any one thing. I always want to say that it's never one thing. Uh, so it's always sort of a combination of a bad, perfect storm, as I like to say. All right. So let's get into, so I said all this because you got to have the setup. Otherwise you might be chasing something down that you don't need to chase down. And obviously, for example, if you grew up in a house with addicts and you marry someone and maybe they're, they're drinking some and you might be hypersensitive to their drinking and maybe they're not using alcoholic lease, let's say, but in your mind, it's too much. You know, it's, it's cause it's, uh, affecting a trauma you have. It's, it's triggering your trauma. So it's really important to make sure that you really are looking as objectively as you can at what's happening. And that's why I gave you the criteria because uh, you don't want your own you know, personal issues or trauma to be interacting with that. Okay, so let's talk about what you can do. And there's some things to know and some things to do. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you both. No, and I have about, so I have not about, I have six things. Okay, so six things I'm going to go over. Most of them are pretty short.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
2: I want to say that first. This is something you need to know. Their brain has been hijacked. This is a brain disease. I'll say it over and over, but people still don't seem to get it. Logic and reasoning are not going to win the day. By the time a person has actually got a real problem going on, their behaviors are conditioned and the brain has changed and they've had so many brain changes that have occurred that stopping can seem like an absolute impossibility to them, frankly. Um... So I really want to be clear. They're them, but not them. You're seeing a personality change. Their judgment is affected. They're, even when they're not using, want to be really clear even when they're not using so even if they're not actively stoned or high or whatever though these brain changes have happened and the brain doesn't change back just because they have they're not using in the moment the brain stays changed so their their values their judgment their way of thinking about things their logic all that is skewed it is different once the brain has changed okay number 2 it's not a choice I get it. No one forced me to take my first drug. No one forced me. No one did. Uh, Said so no one forced your person to take that first drug or drink. But the vast majority of people are able to 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 make a choice to to have a drink, you know, when they're thirteen or to smoke a little pot when they're fourteen, whatever, with no long term consequences and no addiction. Most people can. In fact, the number is about five out of every six people who try a drug will not get hooked this is the problem. So yeah, it was, you know, n- the, like everybody that first time, you don't realize what can happen on the other side. No one gets it. No one knows. So you've got no way of knowing that that first fun, that first fun use or those first fun uses of the first few years would turn into this. This means that it's there when I hear people say well they like well they must love their alcohol more than their kids or they love drugs more than me or anything that is not true get off your friggin' pity pot with that stop it stop it it is so and such an outdated way of thinking and it infuriates me every time I hear it because it's people not believing it's a disease and it friggin' is people it is it is it is it is so You've got to get that. It's a brain disease. I get that you can't see it the way you'd like to, but it's a real thing. And that means that, trust me, nobody... Nobody was thinking, oh, I can't wait to grow up and and make a mess of my life. I can't wait to blow all my money and and tear through relationships and hurt my children. And no one wants, that to me is the very definition of addiction. If you you are questioning, look at what they're doing. It's completely irresponsible and, and unreasonable what they're doing. That's addiction. If you are looking at the person and seeing that, now you know if if they're just saying things that are so off the wall and ridiculous, that should give you the clue. Oh, no, no reasonable person would be saying this because the brain is hijacked. There's your proof in the pudding right there. So uh, so I just want to say that this is not them choosing. Other things over you, this is trust me, if they had a choice, they would stop. They do not want to hurt you. That is not what they're trying to do. And they don't want to keep hurting themselves. It's It really feels like they can't stop. The third thing I want to say is that, and this is really important, substance use, addiction, whatever, has the same rates of relapse as other chronic illnesses. Yeah. So like any other chronic disease, Addiction can be managed successfully generally through uh, some form of treatment, right? Um, it, but it can. And the chronic nature of the disease, it's chronic, it's chronic, means that relapsing or, or slipping, we call it sometimes, is is very possible. It is. But it's important to remember that, the, again, the relapse rates are similar to those of other chronicle, chronic medical illnesses like diabetes uh hypertension asthma these are all chronic medical issues and the rates of relapse are the same they're the same as a matter of fact if you go to my blog i'll i'll print a little um this is from nida the national institute of drug and alcohol abuse um uh i'll i'll link to that on the website but um I just want to be really clear about this all right so but unfortunately when relapse occurs a lot of people think it's a failure especially if they've had treatment and then there's a relapse and this really isn't the case because successful when there's successful treatment for addiction you know for substance use disorder it typically requires this sort of uh continual evaluation uh, continual modification again, similar to an approach you would take with any other chronic disease. It's not like, you know, someone has juvenile diabetes and they go, oh, here you are. This is all the, this is the exact meds you're going to need for the rest of your life. It doesn't work that way. They're going to have to change, you know, as they change and grow, as life circumstances change, as they get more stressed or less or whatever, things are going to have to respond to that. As other things happen, the treatment is going to have to respond. So Usually, if someone relapses with addiction, it again don't think of it as failure. think of it as meaning that either treatment needs to be uh, reinstated, you have to try it again, it has to be adjusted uh an alternate treatment is needed you know but but it's not oh, we've tried oh well, you know, too bad, we're done. you know this is really about not giving up. I was in multiple rehabs. I tried multiple times to get uh to get off a of heroin. It took a long time. And it's just about not giving up as far as I'm concerned. And I will say really quickly here that people do not have to be motivated to get, (laughs) uh, to get to stop using drugs and alcohol. Like if you're waiting for someone to get motivated, it's probably not going to happen. They do not need, and I'm going to talk about that in, a, in the last tip I give. I'm going to talk about that more specifically. but And no one needs to hit bottom. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. Generally, when people hit a bottom, it's if they're getting worse and worse in their use and their addiction, the chances of recovering are less and less. Frankly, that's like saying, oh, someone has to have five heart attacks for they'll give up smoking. Well, they're probably not going to at that point. You know, you really want to intervene as quickly as possible, if if possible, like I said. So... And I also want to remind you right here that detox is not considered treatment. Detox is a medical, it's an initial medical intervention for stabilization, but addiction is a disorder, right? It's this brain disorder. It's literally rewired the brain's reward system. So that means that the person doesn't have self-control just because they're detoxed. Their brain is still wired funky. Their judgment will remain affected for a very long time. Like I said, this is... Uh, it's not, it's a brain disease. It's not going to be fixed in a week or even a month. It doesn't work that way. It's going to take time, consistency, and repeated effort to make the long-term changes. That's just, that's just how it is. Uh, And it's going to take really, I tell people, um, you really want to look at a year of, of really putting all you got behind it to, to really turn things around. Okay. Number five, again, I'm going to give you uh, four, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you four and, I'm, and I have six of these. If there's an easier, softer way, they're going to take it. So don't make it easier or softer. <laughs> and I want you to be loving, but not codependent. If you make, if you make their addiction easier to have, they'll just keep doing it. You know, don't protect them from the, from the pain or consequences of their use. And you, but love, love is the answer I have to tell you. So it's, it's about being loving. You have to lovingly hold your boundaries You have to think about loving detachment um, and you have to be about, think about being uh, loving and not being codependent, right? And all of that is about the love. And I will say, so I will link in the show notes. I did a whole thing on, lo- I have loving detachment and codependency. Uh, I have other podcasts on that. So I, again, I don't wanna spend my time here. You can go listen to those um, and I'll link to them in the show notes. And I have, or you can search for them on the website. If you go to the blog or podcast page on the website, you can put in codependency and it'll come up. Um, I also did a whole thing on boundaries um, and triggers. So if you want to learn about boundaries or your triggers, both of those you can just search for. Again, I don't want to take the time here, but I did a whole episodes on that. So you can go and uh learn learn learn. All right. And remember you want to really uh, I'll also link to how to know if you're in an unhealthy relationship because I talk a lot about, you know, if the person's acting like a victim or if they're blaming you, if they're acting entitled, you know, there's certain things to look for that let you know that you're in a losing game here and do not have this, do not keep this conversation going. But I but I just want to say, and and people call this tough love, but but I just call it love having a boundary is love. It's not about, it's not tough. I I think people get in their head that it's being mean. If I draw a boundary, it's mean. No, it's not. Um, But if you're, if you know that someone is an addict and you're giving them money and you know they're using it on drugs, uh, that's not okay. It's really not. It's like giving them a loaded, it's like they're saying they're suicidal and you hand them a loaded pistol. And I hear people go, well, but, but if I don't do it, then they might end up in jail or something. Well, then they might end up in jail. Maybe that'll be the, I don't know what to tell you. I have a brother who went to jail uh, for his addiction. And that seemed to be what finally turned the tide. He he used after, don't get me wrong, and he did relapse again, but he he then got back on the horse, you know, but it was definitely one of those things that finally helped him really change and get out of what he was in into something else, into something better. So you know, when we're in love, we're not in fear-based, right? We're not in the resentment and the anger and the blame and the trying to hurt anybody. This is not what this is about. This is about holding our boundary because we love them, not not despite it. <laughs> it's because. Uh, so that's that. And this easily leads into number five, which is you got to get support for yourself. It's really, really important that you get support. For you. Uh there's there's 12-step groups, just like there are for um people who are struggling themselves with drugs and alcohol, that you can go to instead of suggesting it to them, you go. Uh there's codependence anonymous, there's al-Anon, um, there's all kinds of things. And these could be really great groups for you to go to, and they're totally free. You can look for them online. I will link to them in the show notes. Uh, where you can find, you know, local meetings and that kind of thing. And e- yes, even during COVID, there's online meetings. And uh, the other option for you, of course, is therapy, you know, to to really look at yourself and, and what you're doing in this relationship and how it's maybe affecting you negatively and what you need to do to feel more in control of you. And uh, Because at the end of the day, again, you cannot control this person, but that doesn't mean you don't have control in your life. It does not mean that. So just like they can't act like a victim and blame, you can't act like a victim and blame. So you've got to take responsibility for for co-creating this relationship, for being in this relationship with whoever it is. That includes your kids. That includes if it's your mom. You know, I hear people go, well, I have to. It's my kid or it's my mom. No, you don't. You don't have to anything. You co-created this relationship. relationship you are can keep co-creating it and keep creating what it's going to be in the future by the boundaries you draw now so so let's get those really clear all right and the last piece and this is going to be um my handout and what you can come over and to the uh again the podcast is at abbymedcalf.com forward slash podcast and this is what are what episode am i on wait hold on i gotta look hold on, I think it's 117, yeah, it's 117. If you come over, you will uh, find the link for this handout, which I'm gonna explain briefly, but it's, Really, this is the answer. This is what us therapists use. This is the the one and only way if you're trying to create change and help people have an aha. Remember, you can't give anyone an aha moment. You can't convince an alcoholic or an addict to whatever. You can draw boundaries and that might push them into treatment, And I wanna be very clear that there is absolutely zero research showing that you have to be motivated to have treatment be successful, zero. I hear people say it all the time. Well, it's not gonna work if they're not motivated. Yes, it actually will. Their brain is hijacked. So of course they don't wanna go. But once they get into treatment, that lifts, that changes, that shifts. And again, it's chronic, so it might not work the first time, but it likely will work another time if you stick with it. So I have absolutely had people threaten to, you know, leave their partnership. And if you're going to threaten, you have to hold to it. You have to have to hold to it. You can't have an empty threat. That's a waste of everybody's time. And please don't make it a threat. Please just be clear that, you know, I can no longer be in the relationship like this. I love you so much. I want to be, but I can't for me. Don't argue the points. You don't have to justify yourself and just say, you know, for me, I feel like you need treatment. If you don't, I understand, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the kids and go, or I'm going to, you know, and I've had people say, well, they won't leave the house. My husband won't leave leave the house. Then you need to leave the house. Then you need to leave the house. Uh, and I actually worked with a couple that were finally and this this worked, and the the wife finally left with the kids, got another place. and guess what? Husband went into treatment. And they are back together by the way He has been sober a long time They are back together and happily so And doing really well uh, And I have multiple stories like that actually I'm just thinking of this particular couple off the top of my head Who are I, love, I just really adore um, And I still work with the hubby and, and we're still working on his sobriety And he's doing a great job uh, And but you know her finally just stopping the victim thing stopping the i can't do anything taking responsibility and really doing something actually was the thing that finally Uh, spurred him to take some action. And so sometimes that happens. But again, it was, and she was, she did a really good job. She did not leave in an angry huff. She, she, she left with these boundaries intact. Like I want our marriage to work and I just can't make it work like this. And so, you know, again, these are all ways to go. Now, so this idea that you can't, you know, What we like to say in counseling is this, you can, yes, it's true that you can lead a horse to water and you can't make him drink, but you can salt the oats. (laughs) And that's what some of this is, is salting the oats, right? Is drawing the boundary, being clear. But again, you have to be clear about what you're going to do on the other side. And there's an awesome tool that counselors use, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, but I'm going to lay it out here. And it's it's called motivational interviewing, and it is an very well researched. And it's a uh, SAMHSA is like is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's kind of the big granddaddy of all, um, the repository of all good stats and treatment and and evidence based treatment and all that good stuff. And this is an evidence based best practice model, this motivational interviewing, and it's not hard to do. It is easy to learn, and you'll be able to learn it from the handout that I'm sending that you can download from the the website. So uh, basically, it's really helping you, and it was developed by um, uh, William Miller and Stephen Rolnick, and it's been around a long time, and it was originally uh, created as a tool to motivate people to make critical changes. And specifically it was around addiction initially. Now it's around any kind of change. So it could be anything from you know changing your how you eat to stopping smoking to other things. But it was originally all about drugs and alcohol. That's why I learned it originally. And it is really understanding <laughs> that you can you can't give anyone an aha, but you can, you can ask questions and be in a conversation with them in a way that they can have an aha. And you can sort of, you know, cultivate that. And so if you're, the first thing with this is that you got to get, like, if you're having a conversation, right? And you're the person, let's say it's your partner who's struggling with drugs and alcohol, whoever it is, your kid, I don't care who it is. And are they being resistant? That's number one. And if they're being resistant, you've got to shift what you're doing. And resistance takes kind of four major uh, ways that it shows up. One is if they're arguing, if they're challenging you, if they're discounting you, if they're openly hostile. Uh, The second is interrupting, you know, talking over you, cutting you off, uh, jumping into the conversation, you know, in different ways, being defensive, you know, in a defensive way. Uh, Three is denying, so they're blaming, they're disagreeing with you, they're excusing, they're minimizing, they're acting very pessimistic, they're reluctant, they're saying they're not willing to change. Uh, That's all the denial, denial stuff. And the four is the ignorance, you know, just giving you complete inattention, ignoring you, not answering you. Uh, no response, sidetracking, getting you off on some different, you know, you ask something and they go somewhere else. If you see any of these behaviors, it's the conversation's going nowhere fast, just stop. You're in a power struggle and you need to shift that energy. The power struggle is not going to help you. And I know you're sitting there right now face palming because you realize how many times you've done this. So, and the first thing is to notice that it's happening, right? There's that pesky self-awareness again. I know it's all over the website go listen all my stuff on mindfulness and self-awareness. Um but so that's the first thing is to notice it, right? And the second thing is to do something else. And what you want to do when you're when you're in that, when you're finding that resistance or anything like that, but even if they're not being resistant, you know, there's still a way to talk to people about what's going on. There there are some tools to use. And uh the tools are ORs that they're they're known by the acronym ORS, I should say. And it's open-ended questions, affirm affirmations and support, something called reflective listening and summarizing. So the open-ended questions are, you know, anything you can't answer with yes, no, fine, or good. And, you know, so these are questions like, you know, what do you think we could do to improve this situation? Uh, where should we take this conversation next? What's the perfect thing I could say right now that would let you know I care about what you're saying? What, you know, anything open-ended where it's going to create some dialogue. And you know, I talk so much about asking good questions, asking good questions. You, If you really think about approaching, if you're thinking, I want to talk to my, this person, whoever it is that I love about the drug and alcohol use, I want you to think, but I'm not going to make even one statement. Yeah. If you're going to do it, don't make a statement only ask them questions as much as you can. You can make a few statements, but let me get to what they can be. (laughs) You want to only ask questions. So, and it might be, um, uh, you know, I really want to talk to you about your drinking last night. Um, What do you think I'm going to say about it? Something like that. Instead of saying to them, you know, you drank too much last night. You really embarrassed me at that party. That's going to get people defensive. That's going to put them on their heels. Or they're just going to say, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. You know, it's not going to go anywhere. So, and then maybe they'll say, um, oh, well, I guess you're going to say I drank too much again and you didn't like how I acted. And then you can ask the next question. Yeah, how does that, how does that make you feel? Or uh, why do you think I think you drank too much? Or, uh, you know, um, how do you feel about it? (laughs) How do you feel about what you were drinking? How do you feel about how you acted the other night? Is there anything you want to change about it? You know. Talk, talk about it. But ask questions. Don't, and if you need to, you can you can write some down and have them as like a little cheat sheet, and you can say the truth. You know, I want to talk to you about your drinking, I have some questions. I just want to make sure I come to my notes because I really want to make sure that we have a loving, open conversation about this. And remember my other tools when you're going to talk to somebody. Ask for permission first. Hey, is this a good time to chat a little? You know, I, I've got something I really want to talk to you about. Is this a good time? and make sure you get a response before you go. Don't just blur it in the middle of something else, you know, really set it up. Make sure you get yourself ready before you talk to them. Make sure you're in a loving place. If you're an accusatory, angry, hurt place, that is not the time to talk about it. It's not, you gotta get yourself right before you jump in. This is not it. So again, questions, 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 and not interrogation, not interrogation, but real questions to try to understand if, if the, the, here's the end game. You want to ask questions that let you get some insight into what they're thinking about their drinking or drug use or whatever. What are they thinking about it? That's what's going to change things. Not what you're thinking about it, but they're thinking about it. And you might be really surprised if they ask you some questions too about, well, why are you asking about this again? Or what happens? And then you can maybe make some statements, right? But not unless they ask the question. Then you want to think about affirmations. And these are any things or supportive words. And this is anything that makes you feel gooey inside. (laughs) And you got to be sincere. Don't make stuff up. But you want to really say to them, you know, maybe in this situation, you know, uh, you're such a great dad. And, uh, you know, do you feel like a you know, you're, and I see you with the kids and you do, you're just amazing with them. And then I see these other times where it it feels like you're not there. Do you feel that? Does it feel that way to you ever? When do you feel most connected to the kids when you're parenting? When do you feel the least connected? When do you feel the most connected to me? And they might say to you when I've had a couple drinks and you can talk about that. Maybe that's the only way they know to feel like they can be a little vulnerable or lean into something. Uh, but this is what you want to talk about, not I'm so sick of you drinking and then you're not there and you're totally absent. I, I say to you all the time, um, and again, I have another podcast on how to be a great listener <laughs> if you want to listen to that, but don't diagnose them. Don't say, you know, you're an addict, you're an alcoholic, you're this, you're that, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're a bad dad, you're a good mother, you're a, like, don't, or good, you can say, uh, but you know what I mean? Don't diagnose them. Just get into the questions, finding out more. And again, using these affirmations, using the love is a great way to get there about what you do see that you like and how from that place can they move? How, from that strength, where can they go? Now, I'm gonna talk about reflex, and then reflective listening is really uh, one of the harder ones to grasp. And But basically, um, th- let me jump to the S the in O's, right? So we talked about open-ended questions. We talked about affirmations. The S is summarizing. And that's really when you say things like, what I hear you saying is, um, you know, you summarize what you heard. You, t- you take a guess, right? As to what you heard them say. And that's great, you know. So what I hear you saying is you feel most connected to me when you've had a couple drinks. Wow. So as you, now that you say that out loud, what do you what do you think about that? And they might say to you, well, that's not what I said. I didn't mean that I feel most connected when I have a cup of tea." It's like, oh, what did you mean? You know, tell me more. Let me, tell me more is a wonderful one. Can you tell me more about that? Can you give me more information? And then the reflective listening is really when it's not summarizing because you're not making a guess at what they're saying, but you're saying what you believe they mean by what they're saying. So, They might say to you something like, um, so let's use that one. That's a good one about, uh, they might say, uh, well, I feel most connected actually when we're out having a couple drinks together. I love it when we sit around the bar and we have a few drinks. And then you might say, so reflective listening would be making a statement. So you don't feel like you can connect to me unless you're drinking, Right. You're making it as a statement. You're not asking it as a question. So you don't feel like you're connected to me unless you're drinking? You say it as a statement. Wow, you're not, you don't feel connected to me unless you're drinking. And what will happen is the person generally will say something like, well, I didn't say that. I, I, I feel connected to you other times. Oh, sorry, my mistake. W- what were you saying then? Tell me more about when we sit around drinking, how that makes you feel. And do you see what's going on here? They're now arguing <laughs> with you that there's something else. And so now they can say it again, right? So they might say, well, I'm just saying that when we go out, it feels really good and you're relaxed and I'm relaxed. And it feels really good. So again, you might make another statement, not a question. So the only time you're relaxed with me is when you're drinking. Well, well no, i uh, that's not what I said. Again, you might, uh, well, That's what I heard. When so when else do you feel relaxed with me? Tell me other times besides when we're drinking that you feel really connected to me and and really relaxed with me. And have them tell you that. See what they come up with. And again, here's the dialogue. Here's where it goes. And then in there, somewhere, you can say something like, I uh, do you want to know when I feel most connected to you? Again, ask the question first. Don't just say it. Ask it. Do you want to know when I feel most connected to you? And See, if they don't say, say no, if they say no, then you can't answer. But if they say yes, which they likely will, you can say, well, it's actually when, you know, we're in bed talking after the kids have gone to sleep and we're just sort of laying there chatting. Or when, you don't have to say it's when you're not drinking or when you're not high from pot or when you're not stoned or whatever. You can just say when it is. And 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 you can say, and, you know, for me, these are times I feel most connected when there's nothing in between us. There's no drinking, there's no drug, there's no nothing, it's just, uh, you know, it's just that, whatever. Um, or when we're doing something we really love, um, I actually feel disconnected from you when um, when you're stoned. I, I don't feel like I can reach you. You know, just, and again, not blaming, not angry, not accusatory, nothing else. You're just saying how you are, how you feel, what's going on for you. So ors, and again, I have a little handout for you. It's, it's not too long. It's, it's something you can definitely follow. And I'll tell you that you want to use these four things kind of in tandem. Like you might ask a question and then you might give an affirmation and then you might summarize and that, you know, you might go back and forth or you might just use one for the whole thing. You might be like, hey, (laughs) I'm just going to ask questions and do my best to stick there. Uh, And because that's, that's what you can do now. So this, these, I hope today was helpful. These are my, you know, tried and true methods for really, and you got to know that you're starting a conversation and that no matter what else you do, no matter what else, you got to come from love. People are not going to want to uh get clean and sober or whatever or stop using when they feel like everyone's abandoned them and hates them. That's not a motivation. It's not. However, when you're loving, if you're lovingly detached, you are not bankrolling their addiction. You are not making life easier for them and their addiction. It is not mean to draw boundaries. Stay loving. I, you know, I love you a lot. You're, you're my son, but I'm no longer going to pay for college if, you know, you don't have these grades that we need. So you can choose from there. If you're, you know, not going to choose to have those rules, then I, I'm here for you emotionally. If you want to call, I'm always here. I'm, I'm happy to help you work things out if you need a, a, an ear or want to brainstorm, but I'm no longer going to finance your life. You're allowed to say that. And so you can take away one, but not, you know, not the other. And that's really what I want you to focus on more than anything else. I want you to focus on staying in the love, having faith in the love and not in the fear. So that's it for today. That was a big one, wasn't it? I wasn't kidding, this is uh, near and dear to my heart, so I'm giving it to you straight. I totally want you to come over to the website, again, abbymedcalf.com forward slash podcast, forward slash 117, this is episode 117, and get your handout so you can, uh, it's short and quick and to the point and really will keep it as a great reminder to what you need to do to move the conversation forward. Okay. I love you so much. Really, really happy you spent this time with me. Uh, Let me know. I'd love to hear any feedback you have about today's episode or anything else you want to hear about. Again, at at abbymedcalf.com. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Relationships Made Easy podcast with wonderful me, Dr. Abby Medcalf. I've got two quick things to say. Just give me one more minute. First, I love spending this time with you and I work hard to make sure every single episode is going to help you move from any feelings of frustration or resentment or anxiety to that connected, hopeful, confident. That's always my goal. So if you have any ideas for a future episode or just want to say hi, let me know what the podcast is doing for you, anything, you can email me at abby at abbymedcalf.com. How simple is that? And the second thing I want to say is if you like the podcast, you're going to go crazy, crazy for my book. My book is really good. I'm really proud of it. You can find it on Amazon or on my website under the shop section on my website at abbymetcalf.com. It's called Be Happily Married Even If Your Partner Won't Do a Thing. And even if your partner will do a thing, the book will still really help you. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.